Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Life Church Buffalo. It is so good to see all of you here today. Is my 11:30 crowd awake, alive? You guys, you guys, excited to be in God's house? Awesome. If you are tuning in online, listening to this podcast, or watching on YouTube, thank you for taking the time to do that. We look forward to you guys being here in person to be a part of the family that God is growing here at Life Church Buffalo. There is nothing like being connected and belonging to a spiritual family, and we can't wait to see you in person. Uh, happy Cinco de Mayo, everyone. I'm not even sure what that holiday is all about, but the last two days are my favorite back-to-back days on the calendar. Like, if you're a Star Wars fan, you know, it's like, may the fourth be with you. And today is Cinco de Mayo, a great excuse to eat tacos, my favorite food. In fact, this morning, I wish I was a middle schooler, because right now, uh, in our student life room, our middle schoolers are enjoying walking tacos in honor of Cinco de Mayo. So I'm really hungry right now. I've been up since 4 o'clock this morning, and I wish I was eating some tacos with our middle schoolers. But no, we are here, and we are continuing uh, this series, as you heard Pastor Lawrence say, on the Holy Spirit, uh, mysterious third person of the Trinity. And the challenge that I have as a communicator is in recognizing that we've got people from all different sorts of backgrounds here today. And uh, what is normal for one might be completely foreign to another, and what is normal to that person might be completely strange and weird to another person. Uh, and in fact, why don't, like, just to illustrate how many different backgrounds we have here today. If you would play along with me and answer this question by raising your hand. Like, how many of you here today come from a Baptist background? Raise your hand. Any, okay, we got some from a Baptist background. How about Catholic? Do we have any Catholic? Oh, a good number of those. I find that very common in this, uh, in this town, especially this part of the country. Uh, how about Presbyterians? Anybody come from a Presbyterian background? We've got several from a Presbyterian background. How about uh, charismatic Pentecostal? Raise both hands. <laughs> Some of y'all raised your hand for every single one of those. You're like, yeah, I did that for a little while, and I did that for a little while, and then I did that as well. How many of you would say, I did none of them. I was just a good old-fashioned sinner before I met Jesus. (laughs) We got some of you in here today, too, and I'm a little envious of you because I think you're probably coming from the best place. Uh, You don't bring, you're coming with a clean slate. You know, you don't have some of the baggage that those of us with church backgrounds sometimes have when it comes to this topic, especially on the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I have a joke I want to start with today to just kind of like lighten the mood a little bit. I think uh, you'll find it interesting. It highlights some of the differences in the denominational backgrounds that we all come from. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Who said anything about change? (laughs) How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, since his or her hands are already in the air. (laughs) How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to change the bulb and nine to pray against and bind a spirit of darkness. (laughs) How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? None. They always use candles. (laughs) How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Ten, one to actually change the bulb, and nine to talk about how much they liked the old one. (laughs) How many Church of Christ folks does it take to change a light bulb? None. Light bulbs aren't mentioned in the New Testament, therefore, they are unscriptural. (laughs) And just so that we're not picking on denominations, how many chiropractors does it take to change a light bulb? One, but it's going to take you six visits. (laughs) 
And how many telemarketers does it take to change a light bulb? One, but they're going to have to do it while you're eating dinner. (laughs) There are more like that, but I want to get into God's word today. We all have different normals when it comes to uh, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, and it's all based on our upbringing. But what I want to do in this series isn't necessarily present what the Life Church Buffalo normal is. I want to do my best to just present to you what I believe God's word says about who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is in our life, because there is a lot of confusion surrounding, surrounding this mystery Holy Spirit. But that is not unique to our generation. I began our series last week by reading a verse to you from Acts chapter 19, which takes place a little more than 20 years after Jesus has resurrected and ascended to his father. And despite the fact that he had told his disciples he was going to send the Holy Spirit, we find in Acts 19, Luke writing that Apollos had gone to Corinth and Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus where he found some disciples. So he found some Christians, some believers at Ephesus, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their answer was the same as I hear a lot today. They're like, no, like we don't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And that encapsulates why we're doing this series, because there are so many people who just are unaware of who this Holy Spirit is and why is he important? What do I need him for in my life? Because some people have rejected him and held him at an arm's length because it's been packaged incorrectly by people. They're afraid of him because they think he's going to make them do some really weird things that they're really uncomfortable with, what I like to call crazy charismania sometimes. If you grew up in the church, maybe you know what I'm talking about. But I want to bring clarity to that for all of us so we have a clear understanding of who he is. And so last week I began the series by trying to help us understand some of his characteristics and his nature by looking at the words that were used In the Bible, over 800 times in both the Old and New Testaments, that we get the word Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost from. And we learned in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word was ruach. In the New Testament, the Greek word was pneuma, both of which have very similar meanings. A blast of air or uh, wind or the breath of God. And so we compared him to wind in the natural and realized that he has a lot of similar character traits. Like wind, he is unpredictable. He is unseen, he is powerful, and he is refreshing. That's what we talked about last week, that he is a breath of fresh air. And when we begin to understand who he is and how he operates, we're not going to run from him. We're going to run to him because we realize that this is a gift that God wants to give us. And so today, I want to continue our discussion on the Holy Spirit by tackling a topic that has caused a lot of people to run fast and far from anything having to do with the Holy Spirit. And the term is Pentecost. Now, before you all run for the doors, those of you that come from more conservative backgrounds, I want to just tell you right out of the gate that Pentecost or Pentecostal has nothing to do with how much makeup you wear, has nothing to do with wearing long skirts or women having head coverings. Pentecost was actually a day. It was a day unlike any other. We're going to read about it in just a moment when the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would be sent was poured out on a group of Jesus followers that would become known as the church. 
And I want to read the account to you today. And I'm going to read more verses than I normally do on most Sundays because I want most of us, I want all of us here today to have a clear understanding of what the cultural context was and what the events were that surrounded this event with the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And so we're going to begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, where Luke writes, after his suffering, after Jesus had gone to the cross, he then presented himself to them, to the disciples, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. He's like, just a couple weeks ago, guys, right before I went to the cross, I told you that I was going to go to my father and that he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and he calls it a gift. You've heard me speak about it. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And after he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes until a cloud hid him from their sight. And so after rising from the dead, Jesus spends about 40 days in his glorified body, kind of, you know, walking through walls, appearing to people, and leaving final instructions before he ascends to his father. And he left them with instructions to wait, to wait in Jerusalem for this gift. Now, they didn't know how long they were supposed to wait. They didn't know what exactly they were waiting for. They were just being obedient to what Jesus had told them to do. And 10 days later, we read in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, and that's how we know it was 10 days later, because we're going to explain to you what Pentecost means in just a moment. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, because they were waiting for this gift. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Man, I wish I could have been there. Can you imagine what that would have been like. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And some of you right now are getting nervous. You're like, oh, he's going to talk about speaking in tongues. I'm not sure about all that. Just bear with me. We're going to learn together what Pentecost was and what it means to us today. Now, while this was happening, in verse 5, there were staying in Jerusalem some God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And I just want to pause real quickly there to explain to you why there were Jews from every country gathered and assembled in Jerusalem. That's because Pentecost was a Jewish feast or festival. There were three major festivals on the Jewish calendar that required Jews to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, to bring gifts and offerings and sacrifices to God. So no matter where you lived, if you were a devout Jew, you would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So we have here in this city a whole lot more people in Jerusalem than normally are present there because it's Pentecost. 
And when all these people heard the sound of the wind and these languages being spoken, a crowd started to gather together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these guys who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us is hearing them in our own native language? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. So these people from all these different countries are hearing these disciples talk in a language that they had no prior knowledge of as they hear them talking about the wonders of God. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And we are still asking that question today. What does this mean? Some who were gathered there were a little suspicious or skeptical, though, and made fun of them in verse 13 and said, man, they're hitting the bottle a little bit early. They've had too much wine to drink. I find that people are still making fun of those who speak in tongues today. But in verse 14, Peter gets up with the 11, realizing that a crowd is gathered and they're wondering what's happening. And he says this, he addresses the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only Nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody starts drinking that early. At least normal people don't start drinking that early. He says, no, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from the book of Joel that was written several hundred years prior. And Joel writes, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. He says, we're not drunk. What you're witnessing is what Joel prophesied about, that God is pouring his spirit out on all people. And then Peter proceeds to preach the first sermon of the New Testament era. And he explains to them about who Jesus was, how he lived and how he was betrayed and handed over and crucified on a cross to pay the price for sin and how he rose again three days later, proving that he was the Son of God and that by placing our faith in him, we could be forgiven of our sin. And those that were gathered listening to Peter, it says, were cut to the heart and they asked him and they said, What should we do? And in verse 38, Peter responds by saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about us. It's not just for those who are listening. It was for their children and those who are afar off generationally, not just geographically distance-wise. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And in verse 41, it says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Talk about church growth. 3,000 people in one day. And that is how the church was birthed and began to rapidly spread because all those Jews who were gathered there for this festival went back to their home countries and started sharing and spreading the message of Jesus in their own land. 
And the church grew rapidly. And it all happened on the day of Pentecost, which was not just an ordinary day. As I said, it was a holiday for the Jews. There were seven total holidays or festivals on the Jewish calendar, three major ones. And we don't always understand, especially if we're not Jewish, like what some of these feasts and festivals that are mentioned in the Bible mean to us today. But Jesus wanted to use the holidays to give us a picture of what he wants to do in our lives. You see, if you're newer to faith and you read your Bible, it may be difficult for you to understand, like, what is the New Testament? What is the Old Testament? How do I, like, where do I start? Do I start at the beginning and just read straight through? And, you know, it, it can be confusing to us. And in fact, you know, my wife and I just bought a book for our kids that I want to read something to you from called The Radical Book for Kids, Exploring the Roots and Shoots of Faith. And if you have children ages eight and up, I could not recommend this book more. We just started reading it last night, and it is incredible. And uh, it starts on page, on chapter one, by talking about how to like read the Bible and, you know, looking at the beginning and the ending. And it says this, I just want to share this with you. It says, what connects the start with the finish, the Old Testament and the New? The story that fills the middle is all about Jesus. The Old Testament looks ahead and prepares for his coming. The New Testament looks back and explains his coming. The story of the Bible is the story of Jesus and why he came to earth. Jesus came to fulfill all of the holidays that we read about in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he told those who were listening, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, which is what they called their Bible. They didn't call it the Old Testament. The law was the first five books of the Bible with the Torah. And then the prophets was pretty much the rest of the Old Testament. He said, I didn't come to abolish that. I came to fulfill them. See, and we today, we don't continue in the practices of the Old Testament because Jesus fulfilled them. But we can certainly benefit from observing the principles of them. You can actually see Jesus in the Old Testament if you understand the picture, if you know what to look for. You can actually see Jesus' plan for your life when you look at the three major Jewish holidays, which we're going to talk about two of them today. I want to teach you this, and I want to show you this so you can understand the journey that Jesus wants to take you on in your life as one of his followers. And so the first major holiday on the Jewish calendar was Passover. Passover. For those of you who don't understand where this originated from, about 1900 years prior to Christ arriving on the scene, God's people, the Jews, were called Hebrews at the time, had to move from Canaan to Egypt because of a famine in the land. And for a while, they enjoyed some good times there. The Pharaoh was friendly to them. You might know the story of Joseph, you know, and his brothers who had sold him into slavery and all this stuff. And, you know, they, they began to flourish in Egypt. But then the next Pharaoh came and didn't look so favorably upon the Hebrews and was concerned at how rapidly they were increasing in number. And so he decided to enslave the Hebrew people. And so they wound up stuck in Egypt for 400 years. Until finally, God raised up a deliverer, a man named Moses, whom he spoke to from a burning bush and said, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. 
And so Moses goes and does what God told him to do. Says Pharaoh, God says to let his people go. And Pharaoh's like, I don't think so. This is my whole employment force. This is, these are my workers. Like, how are we going to get anything done if I let you go? And so God then does a series of miracles or 10 plagues in total, all designed to bring Pharaoh to a point where he will let the people go. The 10th plague, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, was the firstborn male child of every living thing in the land being taken as the death angel would be sent. And obviously God wanted to spare his people from that. And so he gave them instructions to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and apply it to the doorposts of the homes in which they dwelt. And when the death angel came by, he would see the blood and pass over their house, sparing them from this. The next day, Pharaoh wakes up. His son has died as well as all of the other firstborn of every living thing in Egypt, animal and people alike. And Pharaoh finally has had enough. He says, get out of here. Go. You're free to go. And so that is how the Israelites were delivered from Egyptian slavery and captivity. And from that point forward, God told them, he goes, I want you to take one day every year to remember what I have done for you in rescuing, rescuing you from Egypt. And this one day, this, this holiday was called Passover. And there were some specific instructions that he gave them for how to observe Passover. It would begin at 9 a.m. when they would sacrifice the Passover lamb so that they could cook it later to eat it as part of the Passover meal. They would then, according to Jewish ceremonial law, put the lamb in the oven at 3 p.m. And this symbolized that the lamb's sacrifice was basically a covering for the people's sin. Now, Jesus came to fulfill the law. We know that Jesus died on Good Friday, which was also Passover. And I want you to see the similarities. We know that Jesus was put on the cross and sacrificed at 9 a.m. We know that he finally surrendered his life and gave up his life at 3 p.m. where he was then put in the tomb. This is incredible. And his sacrifice doesn't just cover our sin. His sacrifice removes our sin. Do you see the similarities that the Passover in the Old Testament, Jesus was a fulfillment of? That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5 or 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So we need to understand that Passover is a picture of salvation, a picture of what Jesus has done for us by laying down his life, shedding his blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Our sins could be removed for us. And we need to understand that this experience, salvation, stands all on its own. There is nothing we can do to earn salvation. It is God's free gift to us. That's what grace is. It is unmerited and undeserved favor. Because of his great love for us, Jesus laid his life down, not because of anything we've done. But we need to understand that everything that God has for us isn't encapsulated in this one experience. God has more for you to experience. You weren't just saved from something. 
You were saved to something. And the other Jewish festivals and holidays were meant to be a picture of some of the other things that God had in store for us. And the second major holiday was Pentecost. It was Pentecost. And it comes from the Greek word Pentecosti, which means, are you ready for this? It's a totally scary word. It's freaked a lot of people out. It means 50th. Ooh, scary. It means 50th because it was meant to be celebrated 50 days after Passover. So that's the Greek word in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was known as Shavuot. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly. Shavuot, which is the Hebrew word for sevens. Because Shavuot was to be observed on the 50th day after Passover or after seven sevens or a week of weeks. 49 days after seven weeks had been completed on the 50th day, they would celebrate Shavuot or Pentecost. And because of that, it's known in the Old Testament also as the Feast of Weeks. Now, Shavuot or Pentecost had double significance. Number one, it marks the all-important wheat harvest in Israel in the spring, which lasted seven weeks. It was a season of gladness designed to offer God the first fruits of the new grain harvest. It was a festival, a day of thanksgiving to God who had faithfully completed what he had begun by bringing them out of Egypt, bringing forth a harvest to be enjoyed by the people. Separate experience. But it also, the second reason it's significant to understand is it commemorates the day that God gave the law or the Torah to the nation of Israel that were assembled at Mount Sinai. In fact, get this, as I researched it this week, one of the Hebrew titles for this holiday is Zaman Matan Torah, or the season of the giving of the law. There are some rabbis that actually believe the Torah was given on the day of Pentecost. Now, in my research, I can't definitively say if that's when it actually happened, but this is the day that many Jews choose to remember and celebrate the law that God had given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Because after they came out of Egypt, they, God led them to this mountain called Mount Sinai where Moses went up and God gave him the law. And so I want to show you some of the characteristics of what happened in the giving of the law and then show you the similarities of the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, a cloud descended with loud noise and fire. You can read about it in Exodus. There was an earthquake. This, this dark cloud covered the mountains. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was fire. And then God would write his law on tablets of stone. Then Moses would take those tablets, bring them down the mountain. And because he had taken so long, he was up on the mountain for 40 days. And the people didn't know if he was ever coming back. And they had just come from a land where there was idolatry and multiple gods. And they would worship these idols. And so they're like, well, we need a God. And we don't know if Moses is ever coming back. And so we're going to fashion and make a golden calf. And this will be our God. We'll worship the golden calf. And because of their rejection of God, 3,000 people died that day when God gave them the law. But again, compare that with what happened on the day of Pentecost that we read in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit was given, the Holy Spirit descended with a loud sound and fire. 
And God, this time, didn't write his law on stone tablets. He would write his law on our hearts, which was prophesied about 600 years before Christ. Jeremiah saw this happening when God would speak through him in Jeremiah 31 and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord. They're not here yet, but they will come when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And that's what the New Testament is. It's a new covenant, a new promise that we have in Jesus Christ. I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And what you need to understand is that if you're here today as a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been grafted in to God's spiritual family. And Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all one in Christ. And he said he would make a new covenant with us that would not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And 50 years later, God would speak again through a prophet named Ezekiel when he said, I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's the same thing Jesus said in John. We said, I'll put my spirit in you. He'll be with you and he'll be in you. You see, God writes his law on our hearts through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And on that day at Pentecost, 3,000 people didn't die. What did we read? 3,000 people got saved when they received the message and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that incredible? So what does Pentecost mean? It's not what we've made it out to be. Pentecost is not about crazy wild church services. Pentecost is not about swinging from chandeliers. It's not about feeling goosebumps and falling on the floor. But that's how it's been packaged and it's turned some people off and kept them from something that Jesus said you need to be successful in this life if you're going to live for him. So what does Pentecost mean then? If Passover was a picture of our salvation, then Pentecost is power to make a difference. Power to make a difference. We learned last week that the Holy Spirit is a breath of fresh air. But we also need to understand that the Holy Spirit was given so that we could possess God's power to live for him. And so how does he do that? Three different ways that I'm going to give you today. If you're writing notes, I would encourage you to take this down. Number one, the Holy Spirit empowers me to live righteously, to live righteously. Now, righteousness simply means right standing with God and man. And if Pentecost was a commemoration of when God gave the law, I find that there are many Christians today who are still trying to adhere to this law as, it were, as if it were an external set of rules and regulations. That's how so many people approach Christianity. They just think it's like, well, God said, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And your desire is pure in it. Like you love God and you read the Bible. You try to, you know, obey the Ten Commandments. You try to align your life with it, but you struggle because there's this internal battle and you've got some desires that are totally contrary to what God's word says about how we should live. But when you're filled with the Spirit, he writes his law on our hearts on the inside and your desires begin to change. That's what Paul was talking about when he wrote in Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not controlled by the sinful nature, he said. And some of you are like, well, I would beg to differ because it sure the heck feels like I am. 
Paul's saying you don't have to be controlled by the sinful nature. He said you are controlled by the spirit if you are filled or if you have the spirit of God living inside you. See, when you're filled with the spirit, he begins to do a transforming work on the inside of you where you're no longer trying to obey an external set of laws and rules. Now it becomes like his law is on the end. It becomes a part of who I am and now I want to. It's not a have to, it's a want to because he changes our desires and I want that for you guys so badly because honestly, it's a heck of a lot more fun to live that way and a whole lot easier than trying to do it in our own strength. He empowers us to live righteously. In fact, Jesus said, when I send my Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. That's one of the jobs and roles of the Holy Spirit is to guide you into all truth. He'll talk to you. You no longer have to try to remind yourself or like slap your hand anytime you like get out of line or do something that you know isn't what you're supposed to do. He'll speak to you. Say, hey, Pete, don't do that. That's gonna take you farther from me. I, I, want, I wanna show you some things. Do this instead. He'll help you make decisions. He will. Like it, It'll be like this way seems like the most obvious way to go, but you'll hear this voice on the inside of you saying, no, I want you to go this way instead. And this was prophesied about in the Old Testament when Isaiah, he knew that this is what it would be like when, when God would give his spirit because he says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears are gonna hear a voice behind you saying, hey, this is the way. Walk this way, walk in it. Don't go that way, go this way. I want you to experience that he empowers you to live righteously, to make good decisions, to align your life and gives you the power to do what he's called us to do. And he'll help you make those decisions. I know I've shared this story in the past, but like Kelly and I experienced this firsthand when we were presented with the opportunity back in 2012 to move from Buffalo to Columbus to join a church there. And as exciting as it was, it was also very scary for us as, you know, I had a great job and Kelly's photography business was booming and, you know, growing. And, you know, I didn't know if I'd be able to provide for my family if we moved. And so we both set out to pray because we wanted to hear God's voice. Lord, is this what you have for us? And I heard God's voice very clearly. I remember where I was sitting in her photography studio as we were praying. And I said, Lord, I need you to speak to me. And I quieted my heart. And I heard him in that still small voice on the inside say, Pete, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And I knew in that moment that this was him encouraging me to go because if I stayed, I would be trusting in my job to be my source. But he was saying, do you trust me to be your source if you go where I call you to go? And then three and a half years later, we were faced with another decision as Pastor Craig McLeod, the founding pastor of this church, called me up and asked me to pray about moving back to Buffalo to help lead and eventually take over this church. And I was really excited about the possibility of it. I was open to it, while Kelly, on the other hand, was a little bit reluctant because we were settled in Columbus and we loved our life there. We had a great house. We lived in a great neighborhood. Our kids had friends. It was a great school district. Like everything was great about our life. But we both said, God, we don't want to let our comfort with our present circumstances to keep us from walking through a door that you might be opening here, but God, we need to hear from you. 
And so we did a three-day fast where we determined to pray and seek God. And if you're newer to faith, fasting is a spiritual discipline where you can sacrifice something or, or lay something aside for a season, maybe food, and sort of starve your natural appetite, your fleshly appetite, so that you can hone in on your spirit's ability to hear God, because that's where he lives, is inside your spirit. And on day two of the fast, we were both praying in different parts of the house. My wife opened up her devotional. Many of you know the story, and the whole devotional that day was built around a verse in Genesis, which says, I am the God of Bethel, where you made a vow to me and anointed a pillar. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Like We're like, okay, God, we needed to hear from you, and you've spoken clearly. He will empower you to live righteously. He'll help you make decisions. He will speak to you. The second way that he empowers us is to live supernaturally. A lot of Christians try to live this faith life in their own natural strength. But listen to me, church, you were never intended to live in your own strength and power. We were intended to be a supernatural people. Most of us wouldn't disagree with the fact that Jesus lived a supernatural life, right? Performed many miracles, healed people, raised people from the dead. In fact, the apostle Peter was one time witnessing to a Gentile named Cornelius whom he was trying to convince to become a Christian. And he used uh, this wording in Acts 10, 38, as he's talking to him, he says, you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power so that Jesus could go around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And many of you would be like, well, yeah, he was Jesus. Of course, he lived a supernatural life. He was the son of God. But Jesus said that I will send the Holy Spirit who will be with you and who will be in you. And if you believe in me, greater works will you do than I've done. You guys, I want to live a supernatural life. I don't know about you, but Jesus said that we would be able to do greater works than him. I want that in my life. I want to see more miracles in our church. I don't want us to just be really good at what we do. Like, I'm all for excellence. That's one of my core values, if you know me. Like, we will do everything we can to set the table so that people who are far from God can come and experience the presence of God in a way that they know we have prepared for them. But I don't want it to just be about our efforts I don't want it to just be about the lights and the smoke and all of that stuff and serving great coffee. It's all great and it all has its place. I'm all for it. But I don't want it to just be our own stuff. I don't want it to just be a production. I want the supernatural. I want the presence of God on display and at work in our midst. When you read the book of Acts, you see the apostles everywhere they went. They laid hands on people, the sick recovered. And what happened when they did that? People who were unbelievers saw it and became believers because that God is real. His power is available for me. He can save me. He can set me free. He can deliver me. I want that here. My prayer for our church, I pray this every single week before I prepare to preach. What the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And I pray that my message would not, and my preaching would not be with just wise and persuasive words, 
but instead with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith wouldn't be in something I said. So that your faith wouldn't rest on human wisdom, Paul talks about, but on God's power. We've seen some miracles here, and I rejoice in those, but I'm not satisfied. I want more. The power of God is available for us today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You need to believe that God's power is available to heal your marriage, that you can experience healing in your physical body, that you can be set free and delivered from that addiction. God's power is available to us today. But the question is, will we go all in? We talked about it last week. God said that you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And too many of us say we want miracles. We say we want to see the supernatural, but we've got one foot in the world and one foot in our faith, and we wonder why we're not seeing more miracles in our midst. Will you go all in with me? Will you chase him with a reckless abandon and say, God, I want all that you have for us. I want to see miracles in our midst so that people who don't know you can look in and say there is no logical or rational explanation for that except that God is real and he is alive. And if he can do it for them, he can do it for me. That we would see a harvest of souls. He empowers us to live supernaturally. The third thing that he does is empowers us to live on mission. He empowers me to live on mission and ultimately at the end of the day, guys, this is what it's all about. You see, when you said yes to Jesus, for those of you who are followers of him, you weren't just punching your ticket to heaven. You were saying yes to a mission, the great commission that Jesus entrusted to his followers and all who would believe on him through their message. And I fear that sometimes in the church, especially here in the West in America, we've portrayed Christianity in a way where we've pleaded with people to say yes to Jesus because of all the benefits they'll get when they say yes to him. And listen, there are benefits to following Jesus. Please hear me clearly on this. I will preach all day long that following Jesus makes you better at life and makes your life better. I believe that Jesus said he came. I, I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. And when you begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and you have more love and more joy and more peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you'll be better at life. You'll be a better husband, better wife, a better father, a better mother, a better boss, a better employee. Following Jesus makes you better at life and makes your life better. But the benefits of following Jesus is not the be-all, end-all. That's not the purpose of Christianity. It's not the purpose. Listen, I'm going to make a bold statement here. And if this offends you, I'm sorry. But if you're someone who is coming to church and you're just looking for a church that exists only to meet my needs, only to meet your needs, this may not be the church for you. This may not be your place. And I'm not saying that we don't care about your needs. We want to do everything we can to pastor you and care for you. Jesus said that we were called to the broken we want to see them healed, saved, set free, restored. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we don't just come to church to have our needs met. We are the church and we exist for the world. He empowers us to live on mission. That's why Jesus said in Acts 1.8, I read it earlier at the beginning, and you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Why? Power for what? Power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Guys, that would be like him telling us, Life Church Buffalo, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you because I want you to be my witnesses in Buffalo, in New York, in America, and to the ends of the earth. But you can't do it in your own strength. You're going to need my power to pull it off. You can't do this in the natural. You need my spirit. He empowers us to live on mission. Yes, God wants you saved. Yes, he wants you healed. Yes, he wants you to be set free. But it's not so that we can hoard that and keep that to ourselves. It's not about feeling goosebumps. It's not about having this emotional experience in church. It's about being saved, healed, and set free so that we can take that message to our classmates and our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, and our family members so they can be saved, healed, and set free and join the mission to make other disciples of their friends, family members, coworkers, and neighbors. That's the whole point of following Jesus is to make disciples. He empowers us to live on mission. But one of the things he doesn't do, the whole purpose of Pentecost is power to make a difference, but it's not so that you could be prideful in your spirituality. I want to say this very clearly before I close in prayer because in my experiences, I've grown up in churches and I've been around some Christians who have pursued the Holy Spirit and talked to some other Christians and asked them, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And if they say no because they don't know about it or because they believe differently or they're just unsure, all of a sudden it's like they look down their noses at this person as if they're a second-class Christian. Listen to me, there is no place for that in the body of Christ. Let's not let pride sneak in here. Being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't make me better than you. Being filled with the Spirit makes me better than me because he, he empowers me to live righteously. He empowers me to live supernaturally. He empowers me to live on mission, and I can't do any of those things in my own strength. So being filled with the Spirit doesn't make me better than you. Let's make sure that we remain humble and we work together with saints of all denominations, no matter what they believe, and recognize that this isn't about being spiritually superior to other believers. This is about letting God empower me to be all he's called me to be and do all he's called me to do because Pentecost is power to make a difference. Let me pray for you today. Lord, my prayer this morning is the same as the words we sang in that song earlier today. Spirit, come. Spirit, come. Lord, would we have our own Pentecost here today? Would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us afresh and anew? Would you let your fire fall? Would you let your wind blow? God, would you allow us to open our hearts to receive all that you have for us? For too long, we've tried to live in our own strength, God, but you want to empower us to live 
in a way that pleases and honors you. You want to empower us to live supernaturally. Lord, that we would see you do miracles in us and through us, that we would lay hands on the sick and see them recover. Lord, that you would confirm your word with signs and wonders so that people who don't know you could place their faith in you and we could see your family grow and this city change by the power of the Holy Spirit. Send revival, God. We say yes, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit today. If there's anybody here who's hungry for the Holy Spirit, if you feel comfortable, would you just raise your hands as a sign of surrender and a posture of receiving? Lord, we say, come, Holy Spirit, come. Tongues of fire testifying of the Son. That fire is symbolic of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to speak your word with boldness, to be your witnesses everywhere we go. When we go to our workplace tomorrow and we're surrounded by people who don't know you, when we go to school, when we're talking to our neighbors, God, that that power would rise up within us to represent you well, to share your message of hope, an abundant life with people who desperately need to know that you are real and that you have power to change their life. You could put your hands down. There might be some people here today who would say, you know what, Pastor Pete, I've never even experienced Passover. I didn't realize that Jesus was the fulfillment of a picture given in the Old Testament who would sacrifice his life to take away my sin. And today I'm ready to surrender my life to him to receive that free gift of forgiveness. If that's you here today with all heads bowed and eyes closed, I just wanna simply ask you if you're ready to surrender your life to him and invite his Holy Spirit to come in and live inside of you, would you just let me know by slipping your hand up Anybody here today all across this place? I see that hand in the middle. God bless you, sir. I'm proud of you. It's awesome. I see that other hand in the back. God bless you, ma'am. That's what it's all about. I see that hand in the back. This is a holy moment here. We are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit that God's word says convicts of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. One last time. Anybody else? Church, would you join those who are saying yes to Jesus this morning and pray this prayer with them out loud with me? Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be my Passover lamb, to be a sacrifice for my sin. I receive this free gift. Forgive me. Wash me. Make me new. I believe you are the Son of God who rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Take all of me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the strength and the supernatural power to live righteously 
to turn away from my old life, to live supernaturally, that you would perform miracles in my life and to live on mission, that I would take this message, my circle, to the people in my life who need to know you and experience the same power that is now filling me. Jesus, thank you for welcoming me into your family. And all God's people said, amen. Church, will we make some noise for God's family growing here today? So awesome. That never gets old.